Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. Before this call, we were talking about one of the aspirations that you have, the superpower you have is the ability to see a business and to deconstruct it in front of the founder's very eyes and build it up again about how to kind of eliminate some of the pratfalls or painful financing lessons that most founders and startup businesses have. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. It sounds like fun. So when you look at a traditional business, right, you have, how many businesses have you helped over the years and just, hey, Chris, can I buy you a beer? Can I grab 20 minutes? I'd like to run this idea by you. So imagine the nightmare scenarios you've saved people from. I know I count myself on that list from preventing me, saving myself from me, I guess, is what you do best. So what are some of these common challenges that guys like me, when I want to start a SaaS business and I have dreams of getting a Series A and raising my three, four, five million dollars and setting forth on this path to prosperity, what am I not thinking of? What what do guys like you have? being on the trenches and having that thousand yard stare, what do you do to prevent me from hurting myself? Uh, That's a great question. I don't know if I know the answer. I feel like I respond on the spot to different people's challenges, different business challenges. I don't know the answer to the first question, by the way. I suppose it's in the hundreds because I like other people's businesses. (laughs) I just do. I'm fascinated by them. And I'm attracted to the courage and I want to talk to people who have the slightly naive courage to plunge off into the unknown, pretty sure that they've got something, but also pretty sure that they should probably talk to a few people before they just put it all together in detail and then wonder why it didn't work. And I do think one of the biggest errors that folks make is they business plan for the wrong purpose. So they business plan for the purpose in general of mapping out path that they're going to take and saying, it'll be glorious. Here's how it will be glorious. And the amount of confirmation bias that goes into business planning is quite stunning. And the other thing that they tend to do is take the intermediate products of the business plan, which are something like, oh, if we do A, B, and C based on the size of the market, then we'll have growth that's of such and such a percent per year. And then they use that growth of such and such a percent a year as though that's the fact, not the actions that are required to get it. And then tend to back into using canonical means like, and therefore we'll spend a certain percentage of it on marketing, a certain percentage of it on sales. And we'll hit this mark here in two years because other people do and all that kind of stuff, right? It's all canonical. And one thing I think I mentioned in a previous episode is that businesses are more different from each other than people are from each other. Because businesses are not evolutionary endpoints. They didn't come from anywhere except out of the mind of somebody within the constraints of the society in which they live, the laws, the mores, the available resources. So businesses can be endlessly inventive. I mean, look at Amazon. There's a business that's so bizarrely invented in its concept that to this day, I think if you took any sane business person back through the premise, 
except for Jeff Bezos, who is clearly insane in a very good way, you wouldn't be able to get from where it started to where it is today on any path you could have predicted or even wanted to go down. Why is it that putting a bookstore on the internet would lead to the world's richest man? Why? Well, whatever it is, it had to do with the core belief that he had, which is something along the lines of, I have a business idea that has to do with a couple of things. And I'm guessing I've never met him, but I'm guessing one of them is, you know, we could exchange profits for market dominance. And we could demonstrate market dominance in a market by sacrificing profits, but it has to be a market in which price is important. And in order to make that so, it's gotta be a commodity. Well, books are a perfectly fine commodity and new ones are born every day and they need to be promoted and they need to be sold. But at the margin, buying a book from one guy and buying it from the other are the same thing. You get the book in either case, so now we're kind of down to price. As a bookseller online especially, if price isn't your differentiator, you're going to work really, really hard to find one and you're going to fail. So I said, well, how do you do that? Let's see. I got to buy them for something. So I run a really cheap operation with wooden doors for desks and you know all this cheap stuff, mm-hmm. right? Intelligently cheap. Keep your overhead way low. Keep the operating costs of delivery way low. Look for economizing and savings everywhere. And then, ooh, last trick, take no profit. And the stock market will reward me with more money than the profit I could have taken over any given period of time. That is the increase of value of the stock will recognize that I can do this over and over and over and grow, right? It's that kind of inventiveness that I think is so interesting in business. And I think, sadly, a lot of people who have those kinds of ideas don't pursue them in a clean way because instead of asking themselves the right kind of question, which is what must I never do in this business? If I believe what I believe, what must I never do? If I truly believe what I believe, the why behind this business, what must I not do? Instead, they back their way into something that they know damn well they shouldn't do. And they do it because somebody says you have to do it. Somebody says you have to raise money. Somebody says you have to have an office. Somebody says you have to have a VP of sales. Somebody says you need a technical co-founder, whatever one of those things happens to be, right? (laughs) Somebody says something, and instead of thinking it through from first principle and saying, how do I know that? In fact, why why even pay attention to that? The question is, what do I need at the minimum to confirm my thesis, the reason, my why, to confirm it or disconfirm it with the smallest negative impact on the fewest people, especially people that I care about. And it comes down to, well, now you're in the business of doing an experiment. So now you're doing science. And the opening of every business is passion. I want to do it. Followed immediately, if you do it really well, with a tiny bit of math. Is it worth doing if it works? That's the purpose of business planning, by the way. The purpose of a business plan is to answer this question. If it works, would it have been worth doing? It's actually a retrospective done in advance. It allows you to look at the future and say, in the case where it all works great, would it have been worth doing for me, for the other stakeholders, for the world? Would it have been worth doing? And that's what a business plan tells you, the first order business plan, especially one that you're ever going to present to somebody to raise money. But since you're the first investor and your time is worth more than anybody's money, for sure, your time is worth more than anybody else's money, right? You got to ask yourself the question, am I going to invest the time? Well, you got to see the future, but not accurately. 
you must not see the future accurately. That's a really bad idea. You have to make a business plan that answers this one question. So if it all works out, will this have been worth doing? Then having done that, you throw that business plan away. Now that you've convinced yourself to make the investment or somebody else in case you really, really truly believe you need somebody else's money, which in general you don't, but maybe you do. And then you ask yourself the question, what's the smallest thing that I can do in the shortest amount of time that's going to give me evidence to confirm or disconfirm my core thesis? And in general, your core thesis is somebody needs something that they don't have today. And I think I can provide it based on an insight or some other advantage that I have due to my background or my circumstance. If my circumstance or my background doesn't give me advantage to provide something for somebody who has a problem that I can solve, I don't even know why I'm in business. So that's rule number two is root in your own experience, not in somebody else's business book. Your experience is the core of your differentiator. That's what you're bringing to the party. You could be bringing your circumstance. Maybe you were born rich or something like that. Sure. Some people say you're, you're six eight and you weigh a lean 265 pounds and you can put your elbows over the rim. Well, maybe you should invest in learning how to play basketball. You never know. That might pay off, right? That's right. That could be a good one. Your circumstance mm-hmm. may have not have been of your own creation. That would be a version of being born rich, no matter how poor you are. As if yeah. you happen to have a super skill, you're a mathematical prodigy, right? You're a sales genius. You're a psychopath who can talk people out of their money for reasons that they will never understand. That's a bad one, but it would be a, a gift that you could use to start a business. And many people have used that last one as a gift to start a business. Sure. Right? Bernie Madoff sure. may well have been a guy who did that. And the best of the ones that talk themselves into it. You know, they believe they're doing good stuff. Man, that's a really good disguise. So... so- that's, those are the two things, though, and, and they're generally not done. And instead, what's done is take a heaping load of confirmation bias and discount both of those two rules big time. Yeah, big time. And then following a formula, and there's a, a modern version of this, and Silicon Valley was super popular. I used to talk to lots of young people who'd come to me and say, I want to do a startup. It's like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, I want to do a startup. Well, why? Because startups are where it's at. Well, there's no such thing as a startup. That's a nonsense concept, right? It doesn't even mean anything. All businesses at some point start. That's not a unique characteristic of a business that it starts. They all start. That's like saying, (laughs) instead of saying, I want to be president of the United States, you say, I want to have been born. Well, great. Wonderful. We've, We've really accomplished something here in terms of our understanding what to do next, right? So I want to do a startup. Well, okay. So in what? Well, then they'll get usually to something that's in their core. Right? I had a young man come to me, somebody close to me, and he had a passion about how the relatives of old people who were sick got screwed in medical pricing, medical services pricing. Okay. And that the family members couldn't figure out how things should be priced. And when you can't do price discovery and you're a buyer on a short time frame, you tend to get screwed. That's like one of the great principles of life, right? If I got to buy now, it's like the seller who's moving. And I know somebody right now is moving from her house to Tucson. So she's got to get rid of her stuff by the closing date. It's got to all be done. It's in a contract, right? That's right. Yep. Yep. So Mm -hmm. is she going to get the best price for that white couch? 
No, somebody's going to get that white couch for a hundred bucks. And I guarantee you that white couch is worth a lot more to someone, just not to anybody she's going to find in that amount of time. Right. Mm. So being a buyer is the same thing when you're under time pressure and you can't yeah. do price discovery efficiently, you get screwed. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect and Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect and Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. So come on, give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell. Visit connectandsell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. That's the definition of <laughs> like the number one mechanism. That's why the economy almost is. Some people are under pressure, time pressure to buy. Some are under time pressure to sell. In neither case do they find the price, the correct price, the market, whatever the correct market price is. And there's a transaction and somebody wins and somebody loses. But that's okay because the person screwed on price wins on convenience or timing or whatever it is, right? So... It's kind of funny, though, when you say, okay, so you want to do this startup. So this guy wants to do this startup. And I said, well, what, what do you think your first step is? is? He, says, he says, well, I've got to find a technical co-founder. <laughs> well, why is that? Well, because I don't know how to write code. Okay. And how do you know this has something to do with writing code? Do you know enough about this to know that it's worth writing the code? Well, I know that people in the circumstance get screwed. Got it. We started with the passion. Go write the business plan that shows why this is a great idea in the future looking back, if it works. And then you'll, you'll have some sense of what it is. But no, your problem isn't finding a technical co-founder. That's not your problem. And your, pro and your yeah. desire can't be to have a startup because all the cool kids have a startup. Mm -hmm. But you see a lot of that in business. And then you get folks who are at the opposite end of the spectrum. We were talking about our, our mutual friend, Sushi Paramal, right? And so she runs a company called Maxold. And I don't think you'll mind us talking about him because the guy's absolutely a deer. He's, one well, of the he's the only one who listens to our podcast anyway. So That's right. He said he listened to every episode at least once. He said he binged on us, Corey. He binged on us, Sushi. Thank you so much. That's why the numbers went through the roof last week. That's right. That's right. Listening over and over. But he has a brilliant business. Brilliant, brilliant business. And he went about it the right way. Step by step, starting with, is it worth doing? And this is a guy who's tried various things, starting an airline. You can go to his sushiparamal.com or wherever he's, he is out there and check it out. His story is unbelievable. It's told beautifully. He must have talked to somebody who told him how to, you know, that telling a great story is a, is a good idea. It sure wasn't me. But, you know, he's gone about the step by step. Now, he's taking a little bit of money right now. That is mm -hmm. a very, very considered thing to do because he's figured out who needs it. They buy it all the time. And then he's got to figure out, okay, so how do I, you know, how do I spread this out? How do I scale? Wait, hang on. Did you say that a founder of a business actually has a business that's running and throwing off cash and then he's looking for money? I thought, Chris, it happens the other way around. You actually <laughs> have the money first. What yeah, amazing. Um, 
different approach, different approach. It's a very, very much a bootstrapped approach. And the beauty was he, he had an insight and then he went out and validated or and would have been not happy, but mm-hmm. content, I suppose, or accepting of a hard disconfirmation that says this is yeah. a bad idea. Business plan says it's a good idea in retrospect that from the future, looking back on it, if you were to make it great, but the facts of going out and exploring the needs, it's a bad idea, but the facts said it was a good idea. In fact, right here in little Port Townsend, Washington, where I live, we were walking along one day, about seven months ago, and saw somebody with an apron with his company's name on it. An apron said Maxwell, and she was standing in a driveway. And I went over and asked her, what is this? We're out in one of the outposts of the world. This is the Quimper Peninsula. If you go that way, 300 yards, you are swimming to Canada. You know, (laughs) the picture behind me is Seattle. I'm a little ways away from that. And when I asked her, what do you think about this thing that you're doing, whatever it is? And she said, I do estate sales for a living. I'll never do another one. This is the only thing that I will ever bring to my customers. She didn't know that I knew Sushi. I just asked her a question. Well, clearly he's found, he struck a a nerve out there. It was just people need to get rid of their stuff. And I don't know if he came up with it. He he acted surprised when I said it today. I I say to people, okay, so Sushi's business, Max sold, what does it do? Sells everything from the sponge under the sink to the Ferrari in the driveway and gives you the money. I mean, that's pretty good, right? From the sponge under the sink to the Ferrari in the driveway, we sell it and we give you the money. We'll get him on as a guest. Yeah, we'll get him on. He really is great. He's great. He can't even fly to the U.S. right now, even though he has, he has an airplane and all that good stuff. From the airline he started, which didn't work <laughs> out, but learned a lesson or two and it's on his site. But my point is, going through the motions of, of starting a business is not starting a business. And going through the motions of starting a company, a VC-funded company, is almost surely not starting a business. It may be starting a company, which as we've talked about before, is an R&D lab for a future acquirer, but dominance plays don't come out of there. Dominance plays, they come out of figuring out a real need, figuring out something to do about that that can fit within everybody's cost parameters now and for a long time to come, so there's profit, and then figuring out how to scale it. Now today, Sushi and I were talking about scaling. And that's the other, the flip side is you can create demand, but what if you have to service it locally? Can you create enough local service centers capability or whatever you want to call it in order to scale? Well, that becomes a fundamental business problem. And you need to then understand finance at another level because each one of those is a unit of being financed. How are you going to finance it? You have to think that stuff through. This is where talking to people who built similar shaped businesses is worthwhile. You know, if you're going to be a four-legged animal, Talk to the other four-legged animals. Don't talk to the kangaroos. Don't talk to the monkeys that hang from the trees. Talk to the other four-legged animals and say, you know, how did you solve this particular problem? And there's no business books that'll tell you that stuff because there's too much variety. In this case, I happen to have some experience from the past around 2003 in making that kind of financing and operational equation work in the real world. And so I could share that with them, not as some mentor or whatever, but as a guy who built one of those, another four-legged animal, right? Mm-hmm. Running connecting cells, not like that. It doesn't resemble it at all. It's a completely different animal. So when you look at, with that, Chris, when you look at all the businesses that you've been a part of, either as an investor, a board member, an executive, or CEO, and you see that 
when any of those businesses that maybe didn't do as well as you'd like, was it personnel? Was it operational? Was it financial? Was it plumbing? What do you see when you get above the trees and you look at maybe the businesses that you've been a part of or, again, affiliated with or invested in? What's the residue that maybe you've learned? It's certainly going to be different for everybody. But from what makes Chris Beal Chris Beal today, right, the market dominance guru here, is the collective residue of experiences that enables you to now take a left turn when previously you took a right turn and to learn why it's important to take the right turn. What would you say is that a collective aggregate of those experiences, what would you say to us? Number one, I'll go chronologically because it's easy to do for me because I can go back to when I was pretty young because I started starting businesses of one sort of another when I was probably 11. First one was super successful. People needed it. They needed to have work done around their house and in their corral and stuff like that. And a couple of hardworking kids with some tools and razor blades and whatever could do anything. And priced it right, sold it right, knocked door to door. It was my first door to door sales job was selling our own stuff. And it was super successful, actually. It was a very successful business. Key to success, actually, in that one, low overhead. I lived at my parents' house and they, they had me. So I had the energy from the food and time on my hands and I could go make a business. By the way, if you can ever arrange to have your overhead covered at 100%, you should always immediately go start a business. It's always better than having a job. Always. I would recommend this to any kid who's thinking about college who's not a big fan of college. There's a bunch yep. of them. Sure. So tell your parents, instead of me costing you 100 grand a year, how about you put me up at home and I'll go start a business? And it's going to be a grinded out business of some kind because that's how you do things. Go, go all Mark Cuban on them. So if, you can, go hustle. If, you can get the, if you can get your G&A covered, that's, that's a big piece of the battle. You're good. You're good. And that's the number one thing to do, actually, in any business. Number one nut is, so what do you bleed when you're not bleeding, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a business or life is like a racehorse. It eats while you sleep. How much does it eat while you're sleeping? So that was one that worked really well. It eventually ended because my business partner took up other interests. We aged out of it, I would call it, and went and did other things. And then another business that went, a, a software business I was in, I'll come forward quite a ways, that went bad. It was very sad. It was the first Unix-based ERP company. So I think 1983, 84. Imagine on Unix, which nobody built commercial software on at the time. The vision was Unix and it's whatever comes after it turned out to be Linux, same damn thing really, will dominate commercial software because it lowers the effective cost of software development by letting a developer spread their output over many kinds of computers. And at the time there were many kinds of computers. So one developer suddenly becomes 40. And that arbitrage was too irresistible. So instead of thinking up some brand new ERP system, We took one that was fairly popular at the time and just went ahead and looked at it and said, well, these guys, you know, this thing's useful. Let's just build this, but in Unix land. And we did it and it was superb. I mean, it was built in a beautiful way. It made every release on every Monday morning, we would release software, always worked pretty much bug free, got customers like Honeywell and, and all sorts of wonderful brands, right? Motorola, folks like that. Hewish Chemical out of Salt Lake City was a big customer of ours, found a niche in continuous flow manufacturing because some of the things we did in our underlying mathematical model could handle units other than one, two, three. It could actually count to 0.5. 
or 0.3726, right? Which the lesson was target the niche? No, no, well, that was the good lesson was don't be too creative when you don't need to be. You don't need your stamp, uh, your genius on this damn thing, right? So mm-hmm. our, the genius was in seeing that this could be a differentiator that's really fundamental with regard to being able to develop what the market needed. And then the chase, which was smart, was down this continuous flow manufacturing route. But the company blew it. And we blew it because the venture money that was in, which was some of the smartest venture money in the world, firm is still around. I won't name them because I'm a nice guy. But they're big and they're still around. And I've had friends who've gone to work there as VCs since. They got impatient and wanted to make it go faster and be liquid. And that was only three years into it. So what was wrong with that? Well, it wasn't that kind of product. So while we had product market fit, we didn't have investor and company product type fit. You know, an ERP product, you have to treat it like SAP did as an infinitely long road you're going to go down and you're just going to become more and more dominant as you solve more and more problems in the world because nobody else can get to your stage of understanding of those problems and having the code, the integration, the services, and the customers that allow you to be able to go solve the next problem, that is, go vertical to vertical. And so they got impatient, and they decided to shrink wrap the software and sell it as a standard package, fast, 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 and nobody wanted it. So they actually created, the investor impatience created product market non-fit where there was already product market fit. So that disconnect between the investor and the founder and that disconnect on the thesis and the breakup strategy is what should have been ameliorated or talked about in the beginning. So arguably, that wasn't the type of investment that was a snug fit in their portfolio, but they did it anyway. They did it anyway. And they expressed their dissatisfaction by bringing in professional management. And that's a standard failure mode for all these businesses because professional management is the rough equivalent in many VC situations, venture back situations of a salvage job. It's a a kind of a hatchet job, right? You come in and you trim costs and you, you know, you arrange for the thing to be sold. It never got sold except the software got sold to a big company and became the core of a series of very exotic automated distribution systems that were kind of like second to none, the 20 year ahead of their time kind of things. But the the business as a result went away and there you go. I mean, it was ahead of SAP. Who knows? You know, you never know how these are going to play out. I mean, but it's a game that the game needs to be played out over 90 minutes, turning it into a 90 second game is a bad idea. Yeah. That's just all there is to it. And then I've seen that another standard failure mode is overreach. So when times are good, these things can fail because somebody thinks that, you know, one of a business I was involved with, we had an opportunity to sell the business for a lot of money, billions and billions, really a lot of money on a, on a very lucky set of circumstances where a company that didn't have that much money into it was perfectly positioned at a particular time in the market to sell to a public company in an all stock deal with no lockup. And it was a one week long plan to a close and the whole bit, but that ran counter to the notion of the company's liquidity path, which was to an IPO. So when 2000 came along and the beginning of the tech crash happened, the IPO didn't, was no longer viable and the company could neither be sold appropriately nor could it go IPO and Ooh. it got trapped. It's just what, what are those two, uh, the two not, not quite mythical water features, Scylla and Charybdis, 
right? You get caught between those two. And it's like, mm-hmm. if you turn this way, it's bad. If you turn this way, it's bad. And so some billions of dollars of potential upside were lost. And the company ended up selling for, I believe, in 2005 for $19 million with $11 million in cash still in the bank. So that's a, that's a mistake of just an overreach. It was just a moment where there was so much boldness and certainty that liquidity was ours that instead of taking the money, and this is really commonplace, right? Rich Plumridge told me years ago, my, my corporate lawyer at one of those companies many, many years ago, he told me on a round of golf once, and I'm afraid I said, Rich, it's clear you're a wonderful human being and you're a great professional, but it's clear you haven't spent all your time on the golf course. And he said... You know, he said, well, maybe not. I said, well, what have you learned all these years, you know, 40 something years of doing this stuff, helping companies with financings? And he, he thought for about four holes and then stopped me. He said, one thing, take the money. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.